Well, good morning once again. This summer we've been moving through a sermon series titled Parables of Jesus. We've seen some amazing, wonderful parables and learned a lot from them. Today we're going to look at the parable titled The Rich Man and Lazarus. It's printed in your bulletin. It's also in your pew Bibles in front of you on page 876. We're looking at Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Now, if this is your first time at Grace Church, you may be wondering, are the sermons here always so somber? (laughs) Uh, No, they aren't. But today's parable is a really hard one. Not so much that it's hard to understand, but rather it's, it's hard to accept. But isn't it also true? Haven't you come to learn that the the hardest truths to embrace are also the most life-giving. I'm going to pray and then read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Father in heaven, we confess uh, we often do not take our lives serious. Uh, We go through them often not pausing to reflect on the weighty things of life, this life and the life to come. I pray that you would illuminate uh, the words of Jesus as they were once spoken years ago, that they may now speak again afresh in this very room. We pray this in faith, and we pray this trusting in Christ. Amen. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in tormented, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that, they may, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, what in the world is this parable about? Is it about the perils of being a rich jerk? (laughs) Is it about the hardship of being poor? Is it about 
fire and brimstone. What on earth is Jesus saying? What is he trying to convey? Well, that's what we're going to investigate this morning. What is he saying? What does it mean for us today? We're going to do that as we look at four headings. First, we're going to look at the two audiences, then the two paths, the two places, and the two pleadings. If you caught, there's a little theme there, two of everything. First, the two audience. Um, Who was Jesus' original audience? What was he communicating to them? And then, let's look at the second audience, which is what? It's us here today. First, who was the original audience? Well, in Luke's gospel, in chapters 13, in chapters 14, in chapters 15, and now in our chapter, chapter 16, Jesus is speaking to the crowds, and he's speaking in parables. Now, who is in the crowds? Well, yes, there's Jesus' disciples. There's not a lot of them, but they're there. They've entrusted their lives to Christ, but they still haven't quite figured out who Jesus is. He's yet to go to the cross, but they, they trust him. They follow him. But most of the people in the crowds are just regular folks, and they're, they're there either to see if Jesus really is going to be this warrior Messiah they were hoping for, or they just came to see some cool miracles. <laughs> Holy cow, did you see all those demons go flying out of that woman? You know? And then there's a small group as well. These are the hyper-religious Pharisees. They were listening, but they weren't listening to learn or to be changed by the words of Jesus. What were they there for? They were to catch Jesus saying things or doing things that they thought were forbidden in God's law so they could arrest him on trumped-up charges and have him killed. Eventually, they got their wish. That is who Jesus is speaking to, those Pharisees, the hyper-religious types. How do we know this? Well, if your Bible's open and you look five verses earlier in uh, Luke 16, verses 14 and 15, we read these words. You don't have to go there. I'm just going to say them. Follow along. He's, uh, Luke writes, The Pharisees who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They were ridiculing Jesus publicly. And he said to them, that's Jesus, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The original context of this parable is that it is a story told before an audience of self-righteous Pharisees who loved money more than God and loved money more than people made in God's image. That's the original audience. The second audience is here today. Now, none of us here are Pharisees in the official sense, right? If you're a genuine Christian, then you are by virtue of your faith not a Pharisee. See, Pharisees believe that they could earn their way to God by their good behavior. They, they do not think they need God's mercy or God's grace. But a Christian has given up all attempts at self-salvation. He or she depends upon the mercy and the grace of God given to us through Christ. But isn't it also true, that being said, Christians can exhibit pharisaical traits and habits and actions and attitudes. We can foolishly buy into some notion that we're holier than other people or better than other people. We can look down on other people instead of repenting and living a life of faith. 
But that's not the way of Christ. And so this parable helps us redirect our thoughts and actions. It brings us back to the cross again to produce humility in us. But this parable is also meant to speak to any, anybody here who might be a modern-day Pharisee. They don't necessarily look the same as in Jesus' day. Modern-day Pharisee, that's a person who believes he or she knows what is right, and by golly, they're just doing it each and every day. They're working hard to be a decent person. Uh, they recycle religiously. They avoid trans fats. Uh, they think, surely if there is a God, surely if there is a God, then I, I'm definitely in his or her or its right standing. And so if you're here today and you're convinced that you're a decent enough person to merit God's acceptance, then this parable is for you. That's the two audience, past and present. Now for the two paths. First, there's the path of the rich man. Let's dissect the details. Verse, uh, what is it? Verse 19, Jesus begins, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Um, he's a nameless rich man. The beggar has a name. It's Lazarus. It's not the same Lazarus that we just read about that was Jesus' friend who he raised from the dead. This is a fictitious Lazarus. But the rich man isn't given a name, is he? He's nameless. Purple was a color of royalty. The rich man was dressed royally in fine linens. Jesus also said that he feasted sumptuously every day. Jesus depicts a man whose life is turned utterly inward. He delights in his earthly success and he basks in his own glory. He's living life large, as they say. Hashtag best life ever. And yet, just outside his front door, each day lay a pitiful man who has a name, Lazarus. What's his path? Verse 20, we read, at, the, at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man has a name, it's Lazarus. It's a common Hebrew name, which means what? God has helped. What a name. The Greek word translated gate refers to a kind of ornamental, lavish gate that one would find at a palace. It's not your normal gate. Daily, this poor man lay at the rich man's gate. He was starving and his body was covered with painful sores. He longed just to eat the darn crumbs that would fall from the table. And the rich man could have easily provided, but the only ones who provided were dogs. Dogs came and licked his sores. Now, don't have in mind man's best friend. Dog, dogs weren't household pets back in Jesus' day. These were the jackal, hyena-type scavenger dogs that roamed the town. In Jesus' day, there were no pet smarts with three aisles of chew toys. which is a sad commentary on our culture today. Did you know that Americans now spend more money on their pets than they give to charity to help people? And did you know that if every Christian in American tithe, that is, give 10%, as the Bible instructs, listen, we would have enough money to run our churches and feed all the world's poor. 
I'm not making it up. It's true. The provision to eradicate hunger on this planet is in the pockets of God's people. Which begs the question, has God's generous love towards you in Christ made you into a person who holds loosely to money? Do you give of your first fruits joyfully? Or does the work of the kingdom only get the leftovers, if there are any, at the end of the month? But I digress. Dogs were considered unclean animals, and here they are cleaning Lazarus's wounds. The rich man had to have seen Lazarus daily, and on the days he didn't see him, someone surely said, hey, boss man, there's that Lazarus guy out at the gate again. Should we maybe give him some leftovers tonight? The response, heck no. Why does he always have to sit outside my gate? Don't feed him. Then he'll go somewhere else and let somebody else take care of him. So with these two lives, Jesus shows us two paths. But what are they? We may be tempted to think that Jesus is contrasting the path of wealth against the path of poverty. And so the application is to despise all the rich folk that drive by here in their Bentleys on a Sunday morning and seek to be poor. No, that's not the two paths. Material success is not a sin in itself. It's what you do with your finances that can be sinful. Look at Abraham in this parable. He was extremely wealthy when he lived on earth. But he was also incredibly meek and loving and charitable. Abraham saw his wealth as not his own wealth, but rather on loan from God to be used for God's purposes and for God's glory. So what are the two paths then? The two paths are about glory. Whose glory do you live for? There's a path of living for self and personal glory, and there's the path of living by God's grace for his glory. Those are the two paths in life. There are no others. The rich man wasn't condemned for his wealth, but for his lack of faithfully using his wealth in ways that glorify God. God cares for the poor. He cares for the widow. He cares for the orphan. He cares for the alien. And so if you are alive in God, then you, then you should demonstrate God's heart towards these people. See, you can be rich and honor God, and you can be poor and honor God. And listen, poverty and suffering have spiritual benefits. They afford daily opportunities to turn to God in faith and experience his peace and strength and provision you could perhaps not experience in any other way. I used to be a youth pastor back in St. Louis, and uh, seven years in a row, we traveled to Honduras, um, and we worked with missionaries down there. And on two or three of the occasions we were there, we went to the, the town dump in Tegucigalpa. Now, picture a giant mountain of trash. 2,000 people a day make their living at the dump, and they're not getting a paycheck from the town. How do they make their living? They scavenge through all the trucks as they back up and drop off the refuse. They pick through it for things they can sell or things they can eat. We were there to try to bring blessing to them. They had a bunch of kids who were playing in the glass of the dump and we set up a school. There's actually a school now right outside. 
where the kid and parents can go to work and the kids can get a meal and they can learn. On one occasion, this woman came running up to us. She was a Christian. She was eager to tell us that, and she knew we were as well. She came running up with a cucumber. It wasn't a cucumber you or I would eat. It was partly rotten. You could see the black on one end. But she was so thankful. She realized that this was a gift from God to feed her family for the day. She wanted to tell me. She wanted to tell me how of her life and how, how God has been watching out and caring for her. She wasn't always poor and indigent. She used to be a seamstress. She used her hands with needle and thread to make wonderful garments that people bought. But then she developed arthritis. She couldn't work anymore. But in her suffering and in her pain, God provided for her. Now, listen, don't feel sorry for that woman. If given the chance, she would never give up her station in life if it meant living sumptuously every day in the Hamptons while her soul drifts far from God. She wouldn't switch for that. That woman, though poor, was rich. Rich, I say. Her faith was far richer than mine then and probably still is to this day. But one day I'm going to see her again the new heavens and the new earth. And we will rejoice together. Remember that cucumber? Remember that rotten cucumber? God used that cucumber in your life to feed you for one day, but he used that cucumber in my life as an example to feed me for my entire life. There are two paths in this life. A life lived for oneself in one's own glory. And there's a path lived by God's grace for God's glory. There are only two paths in life. There are no other. The question is, which path are you on? Told you this would be hard. All right, so we've seen the two audiences, the two paths. Now for the two places. You know, some people say that God is so completely a God of love that he would never send anyone to hell. They're like the priest in Robert Benson's book titled Between the Dreaming and the Coming True. It chronicles his, his, his struggles with faith in God. The priest was asked what his belief in the all-inclusive love of God did to his doctrine of heaven and hell. Benson writes, listen, here's the priest speaking. Oh, I believe there's a hell, all right, he said, flashing his grin again, as though he had heard this question before and from folks who were far more theologically imposing than we were. I believe in hell. I just don't believe there is anyone in it. Benson's priest may not have believed anyone is in hell, but Jesus certainly did. Now, if you have a hard time with the reality of hell, know that you're not alone. Christians have a hard time with it too. In fact, the fact that hell exists isn't something that we dance about or celebrate. It's a sobering to think of. 
But also, if you're here this morning and you're holding on to this notion that, that God is a loving God and therefore he never holds anybody's sins accountable, then that's rather a naive position. You don't love that way. Why saddle God with operating that way? See, love and justice, love without justice is not love. If I say I love my daughter and I don't get angry when somebody physically bullies her, if I do not fight for justice for my daughter or, or work to see that the bully is brought to justice and punished, how can I really truly say that I love her? I couldn't look my daughter in the eye. Could you? People think they're doing a God a favor by insisting that there is no hell, that God could never bring wrongdoers to justice. Listen, don't be led astray by that faulty logic. Think it through. If God is a God of love, then he, he had better be a God of justice too. Otherwise, he's a pathetic, sorry excuse for a deity. I don't like the idea of hell. I wish it were unnecessary. My mind cringes at the thought of people being there. But hell exists. It has to exist. And sadly, it's not empty. What is hell? Simply put, hell is a place where those who say no to God in this lifetime get their wish for all eternity. Isn't that what's taking place in this parable? The two paths lead to two places. The rich man who says no to God in this lifetime got his wish for all eternity. And Lazarus who said yes to God in this lifetime got his wish for all eternity. Jesus wants us to see how dramatically the tables were turned on these two people. In verse 22, he says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Notice he doesn't even say he was buried. He didn't have any money to be buried, right? The rich man also died and was buried. I bet it was a beautiful tomb. A lot of people came dressed nicely. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. The, for, the, the poor man left misery and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Why? Why Abraham's side? Who's Abraham? Well, Abraham is the father of faith for God's people. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God called out to Abraham, made a covenant promise. God said, Go where I'm sending you, and, and I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you into a mighty nation, and, and all of the nations of the world will be blessed by you and through you and your offspring. It's an amazing promise. Scripture says that in that moment, Abraham, who was chasing after other gods, living a life for his own glory, believed God and followed him and obeyed him. He stopped living for his own glory and goals. He committed to live for, for God and for his glory. Not that, not that he made it perfect, if you know the story. There are some ups and downs in Abraham's life. But at the core of the heart of it, his life was committed to God and to following him. So too, Lazarus belonged to God. That is why when he died, he was brought to Abraham's side up in heaven. The rich man's path led to another place. The rich man finds him in Hades. In, in, in Hades, uh, in the Bible, that is the abode for the unrighteous, where they go when they die. Another name for it is hell. What can we know about Hades? Well, Jesus says it's a place of torment and anguish and fire, which symbolize, symbolizes, the fire symbolizes destruction and disintegration. It means that the soul in hell becomes less and less human over time. 
Hell is also described elsewhere as utter darkness. Darkness symbolizes what? The absence of God's good light. Hell is a place where God's grace does not exist. Here on earth today, we experience God's grace. Even if you don't believe in God, you experience his grace. Sunlight, warmth, rain, food, relationships, sex, good wine, meaningful careers. In hell, there's none of that. Hell is a place so dark that you can't even think of light. Contrasted with hell is heaven. If hell is a place where nothing good exists, where nothing meaningful and enjoyable can ever be experienced, then heaven, well, it's the opposite. Heaven is the absence of all that makes this life so miserable. Jesus says in the book of Revelation, and I hope we trust his words, heaven is a place where there's no sorrow or mourning or weeping or disease or death. It's all swallowed up by God's grace and his mercy as he recreates heaven on earth. Jesus says that day is coming. There, is no, there are no, tears, no more tears, no more death. Heaven is the place where those who say yes to God on this earth get to experience God for all eternity. While those in hell become less and less human every day, those in heaven experience greater and greater glory every day. And listen, because God's glory is infinite and we are still, even in heaven, finite creatures, those in heaven will never tire of enjoying heaven. Listen, no one in heaven ever yawns. Every today will be better than yesterday, and every tomorrow better than today for all eternity. Listen, none of us deserve this gift of heaven. All of us, were it not for God's grace, are deserving an eternity apart from God. But thanks be to God who lavishes us with mercy and grace in Christ Jesus so that we can be a part of God's plan. All right, now let's look at the two pleadings. Did you notice the rich man pleads twice with Abraham? Jesus wants us to learn some spiritual truths. So the rich man, he's in torment. He looks and he sees the bliss that, a- that Lazarus is experienced. And um, he pleads to Abraham. He's got a request. What is it? He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus. He still sees him as like a, a servant or something, right? You know? Uh, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. The rich man pleads for mercy for himself. And you notice he, he does know who Lazarus is. He calls him out by name. On earth he ignored him. Now, ironically, it's the rich man who is in need, and he's begging for the kind of help that he himself never gave to anyone. How does Abraham respond? Look at the, look at the pronouns in verse 25. But Abraham said... Child, kind of ironically, right? Child, remember that you, in your lifetime, received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Talk about a cataclysmic reversal of fortunes. Jesus is saying to to the rich man, according to your definition of good, you got it already. But Lazarus, he experienced bad things. Now he's comforted. And then then Abraham drops the bomb that eradicates any hope for the rich man. Verse 26. And besides all this, between, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. In order that those who would pass from here to you uh, may not be able. 
and none may cross from there to us. Jesus states a sobering reality. Once you die, your fate is sealed. There's a great uncrossable chasm between heaven and hell. It's too late when you die to ask for God's mercy. Jesus wants that original audience, those Pharisees, to see that that there is eternal consequences for their rejection of Christ and his kingdom. Stop stop ridiculing what Jesus is saying and, and actually try to soak it in, make sense of it, participate with it. Instead, they were sitting in the crowds and they were rolling their eyes for months. And now, in love, Jesus is saying, wake up. See what's ahead if you do not turn. Jesus is giving his audience a chance to repent. Well, I think after the reality of his fate, the rich man's fate sank in, he makes a second plea, we see in verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. Send, in other words, send him back to my father's house. I got, I got five brothers. Well, I imagine they party, party pretty hard, right? Oh, my gosh. Think about the sumptuous dinners they had Um, so he can warn them lest they come into this place of torment now for the first time the rich man shows an interest in others though it's not for the poor is it the rich man sticks with his own brothers the rich man begs abraham to send lazarus back He, he wants him to to rise from the dead so that his brothers will see wow this guy was dead now he's alive oh what do you have to say to me oh you talk you talk to my our brother the rich man what did he say that's what, that's what la, the rich man is, is hoping will happen. But Abraham says, your, your brothers, they don't need Lazarus to rise. They, they've got everything they need in order to, to believe. What does he say? Verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. See, see God has given his world his, his holy scriptures. The Bible, in the Bible, there's, there's everything that mankind needs to hear from God in order to believe. But the rich man says in verse 30, what does he say? No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will, what? Repent. The rich man finally admits to his major failing in life. What was it? He lacked repentance. And so did all his brothers, I'm guessing. He could not or would not humble himself before God and repent and plead for mercy. So he knows what his brothers need to do. They need to do it, and they need to do it quick. But he doesn't think they're going to repent simply by reading the Bible. Why? Because they probably don't read the Bible, (laughs) right? I mean, you know, they don't take it serious, at least not serious enough. Why would they start now, right? But if Lazarus went back, well, surely they'd pay attention. Well, Abraham shuts the door once more for the rich man. The last line we see, and he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, of course, Jesus is the one who's telling this parable. Who is it that knows this about about mankind? It's Jesus himself. Jesus knows humanity well. He knows what we all say we want. We all say, I want miraculous proof, then I believe. In my 20s, I was still an atheist until I was 29. I remember saying, well, if God wants me to believe, then, well, he just needs to come in in person and and speak to me, and and then I'll believe. How arrogant, huh? Seriously? Okay. Chances are, even if that happened, what? The human heart is so hard to the real spiritual realities of this world that we come up with all kinds of excuses not to believe. And Jesus knows this about people. 
Jesus knows that miracles won't penetrate the hardness of human hearts. Later, Jesus actually rose a man from the dead. His name was Lazarus, right? Earlier, Sharon Kerr read that passage of, a, of that account. Do you remember how the, how the Pharisees responded when they heard? What did they do? They wanted to kill Jesus. That makes sense. Kill Jesus. They saw Lazarus had risen with their own eyes. People there even heard Jesus say, remember these words? I am the resurrection and the life. Those are, that's a bold statement. Somebody says, I'm the resurrection and the, and the life, and that, and that if you, whoever believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? I mean, those are pretty profound words. He's either insane, lunatic, bonkers, crazy, or he really is what he says he is, the resurrection and the life. And through him and by him, you can experience a resurrection of life. If he would just stop coming up with excuses and acknowledge that we're not the people we know we should be. We live for our own glory, not for God's glory. And turn and by God's grace receive forgiveness. And by God's grace seek to live a life for God in his glory. That's the message of Christ. And guess what? Eventually, the religious leaders and the Pharisees, they got their wish. They, wound, wound, they round, rounded up uh, Jesus and on Trump charges. They crucified him. They finally got rid of him. Or so they thought. Remember how Caiaphas said, guys, guys, stop this. It's, it's, good. it's good that one man should die for the nation. How prophetic. One man did die, not just for the nation, but for the world. Jesus was put to death for the sins of the world, and by his resurrection, he gives life to all who trust in him. The tomb is empty to this very day. Jesus is alive and well, and guess what? Abraham is by his side now, waiting for the time to be fulfilled, for Christ to return and renew the universe. Until then, there is time, my friends, time for mankind to hear and believe. If we looked at the two audiences, the two paths, two places, two pleadings, how are we to respond? Jesus is saying to the first audience and to us today, there's two paths you can walk in life. The narrow path that leads to life and the broad path that many travel upon that leads to eternal death. But, as a great philosopher Led Zeppelin once sang, yes, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. Jesus wants us to listen, and if we find ourselves heading away from him, we are to turn, not tomorrow, today, and trust in him. You can do that. It's not really hard, but it, it is hard. It means yielding our life to someone else. For those who have turned to, try to Christ, be reminded that, that the narrow road is hard, but it's worth it. As you come forward for communion, be reminded of God's calling upon your life. Recommit to walk after Christ, who walked for you when he walked on this earth. Hear afresh Jesus' words, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Well, that was a pretty hard parable. We're thankful that you are God and we are not, that your ways are higher than our ways. A lot of being a human being on earth is trust, 
trusting in your words, trusting that you are really, really good, and we're not, (laughs) apart from your grace. May we be fortified this morning by the words we've studied. May we not be the same people we were when we walked in, but may we be more and more made into the image of our Savior who lived and died and rose for us, we pray. Amen.